What do you consider to be unusual? Oh, I don't know. What do you recommend? Hello, everybody. Welcome to the sixth installment of the CuffCast, a film resource podcast for all movies. Weird, strange, cinematic, grandiose, gross, lurid, the good stuff. Stuff we play at the Calgary Underground Film Festival. With me is my co-host with the perky little butt and producer, Rhett Miller. Hello. And uh, on uh, today's episode, we have Brett Berg of the American Genre Film Archive in the Museum of Home Video and Paul Corp of Canuxploitation and Rue Morgue. Thanks for listening, everyone. Rhett, we're back at the movies. Cuff had some live events in August. We brought folks Swan Song with Udo Kier. He's a magnificent hairdresser of drag queens. It's maybe the best Udo performance of the last 20, 25 years. He just keeps going. You know, he's been around for so many years. He can't stop working. I heard when he was in Winnipeg, it was the coolest dude. He went to the diviest of bars and became friends with all the patrons. Udo Kier, living legend. Uh, Swan Song is a great return to form. Should be on VOD very soon. We also showed uh, Shion Sono's Prisoners of Ghostland, starring Nicolas Cage, and a wonderful performance from Bill Mosley. Super trippy, Mad Maxian type uh, post-apocalyptic film where Nicolas Cage has explosives rigged to his testicles. So if he gets slightly aroused, they will detonate. Uh, it's a very strange movie. Very funny, but also uh, quite spiritual. Uh, so I, I gotta get a spoiler. Do they detonate? They detonate. Oh. <laughs> uh, and last but not least, we had an outdoor screening of Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Love that film. It was great to see with the crowd. I'm going to pretend that we have already watched it together. It doesn't happen for a couple weeks, but it will have happened once this podcast is released. I'm sure it was awesome. DJ Jet Thunders, bringing the thunder. And uh, I love Killer Clowns from Outer Space, man. That was kind of one of the early... Entry-level B-movies, you know? You can watch it as a teen and not be too creeped out, but the design of the puppets is still, like, so gnarly. I remember, yeah, Roger Ebert had it on his show when he was Ebert at the movies and he had Harry Knowles as the guest. Oh. And, I, and I remember being like, that, that was the first my first experience to that, and that was one of the first times in, like, a mainstream kind of, you know, Siskel and Ebert kind of show that they would introduce something like that. And yeah, so, because you know, Ebert usually so, hated these types of movies. And then it was one of those early midnight movies, MGM discs, and it had a whole bunch of features. Yeah. You know, it so. has such a huge legacy. It's actually still kind of hard to program that movie. We had to search and search for a contact, but it was really great to work with Park Circus to bring this to the Calgary folks. But, uh, I mean, this is a nice time to reflect on, you know, the craziness of the last year and a half of all these virtual screenings and outdoor events. Um, it's nice to be back to the movie theaters. I went and saw a nice, very nice projection at one of the megaplexes this week. Uh, the air conditioning was nice. I liked the, I liked the new seats. And uh, the best part about being at the cinema is you don't have the opportunity to pause the movie. You're forced to immerse yourself fully in the picture. For better or worse with the types of pictures we're getting these days, 
But sometimes you'll get a nice revival screening of a movie that's worth committing your full attention to. I was going to say, movies work so hard to, to distract you for your attention all the time, the, you know, the big budget blockbusters. But those more experimental or arty ones, you know, those really are the ones that require that theater. So you aren't distracted by, you know, the silences and the pauses and the slower pace. You know, Mandy would be a very difficult film, I think, to just watch at home because, like, there's so many parts just pause it and stop but to see that in the theater and let all the color and sound kind of wash over you that's the real experience during quarantine as part of joe bob i'm guessing yes i did yeah yeah joe bob briggs was maybe one of my favorite quarantine rituals it kept me sane for a little bit there we've talked about it on the show a lot but honestly having that ritual of something to look forward to on the friday and knowing it'll be pretty dope yeah, exactly. Like a routine, some some kind of routine where there was actually like a live event, like you had to watch it live with other people, like, you know, separate but together. And it was it was nice to have that. Yeah. And that's how I started actually watching our guest, Brett Berg's lovely, I guess, VJ Mix Museum of Home Video. Every Wednesday, he would do a live stream on Twitch of uh, found footage, uh, music videos. And we'll talk more about this later, but re-edited versions of movies that aren't that good but with only the good scenes like a quick hits version yeah 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 and uh very fun and the chat thread was actually like quite engaging and i was noticing like i mean i'm i didn't get the internet till i was 20 so and when i got on the internet it was yeah message board culture where people were being kind of nice to each other and directing people to like the cool stuff. Like you'd be able to go, hey, I've just watched Evil Dead 2. What are some other movies I should watch? Without a bunch of people going, you idiot, you just watched that? Or One is way better, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like people would actually help you in these old message boards before Twitter. Sam Raimi did something terrible in 1961, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the, thread, the chat threads on Museum of Home Video felt very much like those old message boards where people are like, oh, this movie looks really cool. What is it? And someone would be like, oh, it's this. And like, oh, how can I find that? Or, and, but sadly, a lot of these things they were showing on Museum of Home Video were ultra, are ultra rare, ultra rare. So they have a Patreon right now. I'm donating to it to catch up on all the glory I missed over the last year and a half. And when you donate, all of the stuff is available. All of it. You. Yeah, That's all of awesome. it's available. And there's a lot. Oh my goodness, it's going to take a long time to get through it. I'm going to need another pandemic to get One through One more? Well, Delta, come on, do your thing. <laughs> right, don't put that <laughs> out there. But, I mean, what else did you do during quarantine? I, I became a bit of a, a comic book expert, man. I just dug into, like, Silver Age to, like, the 90s stuff. And um, it, was ni- it was nice to, like, because I obviously I like movies a lot. But I didn't know much about comics before quarantine, but... Um, Cartoonist Kayfabe is a YouTube channel that was very active during quarantine. And this is Ed Pisker and Jim Rugg, two professional comic book guys. And they were bringing on like Todd McFarlane or they do a profile on Barry Windsor Smith. And they were doing these super engaging videos about um, niche artists, but treating them like, like stars. And actually, when you read the work, the stars they should be, which was, you know, it, it was like a lot of people were being very generous with their time and their knowledge over streaming and over video during the pandemic and i just hope that people keep it up right because it feels like it's starting to bring the people in the smaller towns that might be interested in cool nerdy stuff it's giving them the same access there's not this elitist behavior that you have to be in la or austin or new york or toronto 
to experience the good shit in the culture, you know? And yeah, for me, it was nice to kind of push pause on modern movies for a bit as everyone held their releases back. So then it kind of allowed you to look back at movies you might have missed or try to catch up on some niche, more niche things. And yeah, for me, I was catching up with some some Canadian films I hadn't seen before. So Paul, I'm sure, will be able to talk to, to that as well. He's the curator of all that weird, fun, crazy Canadian stuff. But it was really nice for me to just kind of indulge in stuff where I'm not worried about keeping up with the Joneses in terms of watching all the, the modern films, you know, but it was nice to to dive back a little bit and, and check off a bunch of uh, blind spots in my watching collection. And there's so many Canadian gems. I mean, we talked about this a couple times, but yeah. so many Canadian gems that have yet to see the light of day, but... I mean, Severin just put out that Siege Blu-ray and uh, Born in Hell, which is, I believe is another Canadian yeah, yeah. film. I haven't seen that one yet. So they have a third one, too, I think. I can't remember now. That, that's coming out then the next wave, I think. So, yeah, it's, it's been a fun time for Canadian cinema, especially with the keynote. People are just doing a bunch. eating up these trash movies. So <laughs> hopefully they continue eating them up post-pandemic when they can leave the house again. Too. I hope so. But it's been nice to connect to people in various different ways to watch movies online and, you know, platforms like Amazon Prime and, and Facebook Tubi. or things like that. Tubi have allowed you to watch it as a group too, like a communal sort of thing, like to link things up together. So it doesn't have to be just a private experience when you're yeah, watching. Yeah, you can keep that up too when the world reopens. Connect with your friends while they're at home with their families and maybe can't leave the house that night. Like I think the world became a bit more inclusive this last year and a half. It was not a nightmare, but I th- hopefully something nice came out of it. And hopefully people are going to continue to be more um, generous with their passions and sharing them with each other. Next up, I'm proud to finally introduce to the show Paul Korup, who is a good old friend of mine, kind of my gateway to Canadian film. I uh, was connecting with him for the website Exploitation, where I was a contributor. In addition to running Exploitation. Paul also is a managing editor of a small press publisher for film and pop culture books, Spectacular Optical. He's also a contributing writer for Rue Morgue, which I'm a huge fan of. And you can hear his work on many Kino Lorber discs, many Severin discs. He's kind of the go-to guy on any exploitation film. So let's hear what this great Canadian gatekeeper has to tell us. Ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing wrong with the projection, but you can't share the shock until you have the miracle movie mask. At showings of this motion picture, each patron will receive his own miracle movie mask. Then, but let's watch the scene again. Well, thanks so much for joining the CuffCast, Paul. Exploitation has been such a great resource for all Canadian film nuts. I remember that might have been the first website I would go to friends' houses to check on before I had the internet. I was like, what kind of weird stuff is coming out of our country? And the way that you and your writers would write about it was so impassioned that uh, I just want to know, where did exploitation come from? Why did you feel the desire to create this site and when? I don't want to say it was like a lightning bolt of inspiration, but I, but everything, a bunch of stuff in my life just kind of, kind of uh, coalesced around a certain moment. I had been doing stuff in Toronto's small press with, with zines and so forth, and I kind of got tired of it, and I was looking for a new project. And around the same time, I was getting into Canadian films and I was watching uh, CBC used to have a a, kind of a late night Thursday night Canadian film showcase. And they would show things like Roadkill 
and Exotica and stuff like that. And and you know VHS collecting was was big with me back then. And uh, you know I started seeing some films like Cannibal Girls, The Mask. I you know I knew Cannibal Girls was Canadian. The Mask I didn't realize it was Canadian until I started recognizing some of the locations. And I just kind of got really interested. Like oh I I you know I don't I've never really read anything about these films. Yeah, I can go read about Adam McGoyan, but who's writing about Cannibal Girls? Um, there's got to be a book or something. So I started trying to do some research and I was surprised to find that there was basically nothing at that time. You know, this was like 1998, 1999. And that was kind of the, that was the, the impetus for it. I, I needed, a, I was looking for a new writing project, getting interested in these kinds of films. And and the, the idea, the, the word exploitation just kind of came to me one day when I was thinking about it. And, and I was like, that's, that's it. I got to, you know, I got to do this. Um, I really wanted to see the films that we as Canadians had made over the years. I felt like, um, you know, I would read books and they'd say, well, there was the tax shelter years and they made a lot of crap. And I was like, well, what do you mean a lot of crap? Like, what are the films? Like, I, I wanted to actually know what the films were like. So I pulled out all my psychotronic uh, encyclopedia books, started flipping through and looking for Canada and made a master list. And at that point, I would go to the video stores and with my list and just kind of, you know, go through the previously viewed bins and start pulling stuff out that I thought would be interesting to watch and started reviewing them. So it was a gateway to a lot of new films, new Canadian films that you hadn't seen. Oh, absolutely. But that was the way I really wanted to, to do it. I really wanted to um, explore some of the films that we, you know, like the mask, you know, the mask I, I saw and I was, and it was only later I realized it was Canadian. And I was like, well, there's gotta be the other things that are good or are, you know, worth watching that I don't know are Canadian or, or that are just people aren't talking about them or haven't seen them. Um, so it was my way of kind of like, you know, if I could find something, then I could watch it, then I could talk about it and kind of catalog it for myself and, you know, understand it from, from this perspective of Canadian genre filmmaking. Um, I guess another thing that was kind of happening around that same time was, was like the Mondo Macabro uh, books and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, you, you'd read these books and it would be like, oh yeah, here's it, you know, here's Italian cannibal films and here's, you know, Spanish nunsploitation and here's, you know, um, Australian horror films. And I was, and it's like, well, okay, where's Canada, right? Like it's not here. So I, I, I wanted to kind of, you know, I knew nobody had really gone through this quite so, so carefully before. So this was, I felt this was the opportunity to kind of do it. And yeah, I think like Canadian film tends to get overlooked in those kind of compilations because, you know, it's not, not in a different language. We're so close to the States, so people might confuse it potentially. A lot of them were co-productions with the States too, right? Yeah, or if, you know, tax shelter stuff where the American filmmakers are coming here, but there's still some kind of Canadian sensibility. So I was wondering if you could kind of speak to, you know, what is kind of the flavor of exploitation cinema? What are some kind of things that you might notice in, in all those films that sets them apart from your typical American films? Like we can tell what an Italian cannibal film is like, but what about Canadian cinema? exploitation. You know, I, I probably 15 years ago, I would have had a totally different answer for this. I kind of my current belief about Canadian film is that it's it's kind of like just it's a regional cinema. It's 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 not that much different from you know, um, people making films, you know, at Texas, Texas regional films or, or uh, Wisconsin, re you know, Bill Rabin, Wisconsin regional films or whatever it is. It's, it's its own kind of scene. And is it is it totally different from American films? No, because 
Canadian directors are watching those films. Canadian directors are, you know, aren't, aren't like, well, I'm only going to be influenced by Black Christmas, but not Halloween, you know, and it doesn't happen. So, you know, there, there are certain kind of earmarks, obviously, you know, same kinds of locations, same kind of um, actors. There's a lot of kind of like high concept stuff, especially in the 1970s, early 80s, just as a way of, of marketing it, essentially. You know, Canada didn't have the, the, the pull to bring in big stars, really, uh, you know, even when they were bringing in American stars, it was often kinds of American stars who weren't doing much at the time, you know, so, so they were kind of looking to have a lot of kind of, you know, explosions or, or, you know, things like, uh, you know, giant rats running around and, and, you know, something that really tended to grab people's attention and, and, and bring them in. But I, you know, I think, I do think sometimes kind of the, some of the political, you know, are, are kind of, uh, you know, more civic-minded attitudes are are kind of on display in in uh, horror films, uh, in all genre films, really. Um, and you can kind of sometimes pick them apart and and see some subtle differences in how Americans might have approached the topic compared to Canadians. Yeah, I find maybe maybe it's because of the smaller budget, but I find like we will we will tackle subject matter that maybe is not quite safe for what you know, American, you know, Hollywood studio film would do. Like, I think even up to the ending of something that was relatively popular, like Prom Night, and that's got a, a quite an interesting ending with the reveal of the killer, you know, that I think probably wouldn't have flown in Hollywood at the time. I just mm-hmm. feel like, you know, Canada, be probably because of the smaller budget or maybe because we're not under the microscope of being shot in LA or or uh, New York or something, they can probably maybe get away with a little bit more or, or mm-hmm. they don't have as many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think... I- I think one of the other things I've talked about a bit on my site is is kind of having that distance sometimes between American pop culture and and you know Canadians we of course we absorb a lot of American pop culture but we know in some sense it's not really aimed at us it's not intended for us you know we can sit there and watch uh, Chuck Norris movie with waving American flags and we're thinking haha you know that's America right like that's not us uh, it's not meant to inspire us so we've always had this kind of like slightly distant relationship with American culture and I think that does pop up a lot you know I, like there's a lot of films a lot of Canadian genre films that have like this film noiry kind of approach with like a character in a trench coat and it's like you know it's just kind of a not a parody but kind of commenting a bit on the american pop culture behemoth that we all you know you know the canadians grow up beside and 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 spend a lot of time absorbing but also kind of you know from a distance with maybe a bit more cynical eye than an american might we're trying to copy or or make a version of these yeah. common tropes we see in America, but we do it in a different sort of way because we're, we have that detachment. That's a great point. Just maybe going back, like when did you start realizing, you know, that you were watching a Canadian film? Like you kind of mentioned the mask, which I remember you sent me a VHS copy of that. And that was how I was introduced to the mask. I think you threw some 3d glasses in there. Wasn't an Elvira screening yeah. of it, I think, or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, that was my intro as well. So thank you for that. Cause I love the mask. But uh, was there a certain film or anything that sort of got the mind thinking of like, hey, this is a film from where I'm from? As a teenager, I really got into 1950s science fiction um, and and horror films. And that was kind of my my intro. So when I went to I would go to the States because it was cheaper there. And, you know, we go down to Buffalo and I would buy tapes from the movie stores and. Rhino had a series of 3D movies. So I was basically just collecting those. Like I I wasn't going thinking, okay, what's Canadian? At that point, anyways, what's Canadian, what's not? It was just like, oh, well, I'm going to buy all these Rhino 3D movies because, you know, they're great. Um, And then 
you know, I would buy the mask and I would have absolutely no clue what it was and watch it and be like, oh yeah, okay. And then I'd say, oh wait, that's shot at the Royal Ontario Museum. Like I go there all the time on school field trips. Like that's so weird. Like, you know, I've never heard of this film before, especially I've never heard of this film mentioned in a Canadian context. Um, You know, that's a film that's been on, it was on the cover of the research incredibly strange film book, but even that book, I don't think really, you know, says it's a Canadian movie and, and, you know, realizing that this was kind of a really early example of that really kind of just surprised me. If you're a Canadian and you know anything about films, if you follow Canadian filmmaking at all, you know, the kind of, you know, NFB stuff and and people say, well, you know, Don Owen, uh, Nobody Waved Goodbye, 1964. Well, that was the start of Canadian film. Well, it's not. I mean, there, there was lots of stuff that was happening before that. And seeing these films kind of opened my eyes to the fact that there was a whole history out there that was kind of just not being appreciated or celebrated or anything like that. So, you know, I, I would say for sure something like Deranged also, uh, when I watched that for the first time, I don't think I don't I think I just watched it not realizing that was Canadian either. You know, the kind of the scenery was very much the kind of the scenery that I grew up with when I was a kid. Um, you know, I grew up in in the kind of suburban rural area north of uh, north of Toronto and recognized it like that really looks familiar and and really having that kind of hit home that these films were being made oftentimes, you know, nearby. And I, and I since then have seen films made in my hometown. I, in fact, uh, I was just watching uh, Blue Monkey. Uh, William Frill's Blue Monkey a couple of months ago. And the opening shot is my, is the street I used to walk down every day I used to go to school. And, you know, that's like the only shot in the whole film, right? <laughs> like in the town, everything else is interior. But I, I was like, that's that was where I grew up. Like, it's it's incredible to think that, you know, that was shot probably when I was like eight years old walking walking down the street. Paul, do you feel that the uh, like the Canadian culture has shunned the tax shelter movies because of the embarrassment of the embezzlement or or that they were trying to make a certain type of marketable film because it feels like a tax shelter system almost was a good idea like it could have worked with proper audits in place yeah no i i I think the kind of uh critical attitude towards tax shelter films at the time and you know I, i i will say that I've seen it change quite a bit. I'm not going to take sole credit for that, of course, but since I started my site more than 20 years ago, it it has changed. I see a lot more kind of openness to accepting that stuff. But I think the there was a definitely dominant cultural idea that these films had to, in some way, enlighten the, you know, um, shine light on the Canadian experience. Tell us something about, you know, it's got to tell, a Canadian film has to tell Canadians something about themselves. And, the idea that we would inst- in have this opportunity to tell a Canadian story, to show Canada to Canadians, we would just throw that aside, throw that aside, and instead make a movie about you know a killer doll was I think just a little bit too much for people, especially at that time because we had not made very many films um, compared to say the United States. You know, I think the tax shelter film was a, a fantastic era. It was it it did what it was supposed to, which was we made a whole lot of films whole lot of different kinds of films, taught a whole generation how to um, operate equipment, how, how to, you know, to, to train them, uh, to give them the, the tools that they needed to make uh, their own movies. You know, I, I think it was a huge success, but, but I think at the time, and, and especially even up until the 90s, there was just this attitude that it was junk. It was too American. We were copying America. Well, how can you show Canadians Canada if you're just going to copy whatever America's doing it? So I think there was, yeah, there was a huge attitude towards those films. 
I don't know if the, it, it, they felt it was too much of a kind of a scam. I just, I, I feel like if, especially like the taxpayer angle, right? Like if, if I'm paying taxes and it's going towards arts funding, it should be upstanding art. you like, you shouldn't be, you, you know, you, you shouldn't be giving it to, to um, Ivan Reitman to make Cannibal Girls or, you know, William Fruitt to make Death Weekend. Like it's just, you know, distasteful subjects that don't really explain anything about the Canadian experience. Yeah, what's that headline for when Shivers came out? It's like this movie's crap, and you should know because yeah. you paid for it or something well, exactly. like that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think that's and I think that was really, you know, one of the really dominant kind of criticisms at the time. But I mean, nowadays, you, now you look back and you think that's insane. Like you telling David Cronenberg that he's not worthy of arts money. Like we shouldn't be giving money to David Cronenberg. Like it's it's beyond crazy now. And but it just goes to show you how much things have changed. And you know. Cronenberg, obviously the biggest success story out of the tax shelter years, but there was just lots of lots of filmmakers um, doing a lot at that time and and really kind of pushing Canadian film in a lot of different directions that it hadn't hadn't gone yet. Um, and sometimes, you know, and and maybe even compared to today, still doesn't often go back in that same in quite those same directions. Yeah, like guys like Paul Lynch and William Fruitt, like their basically entire career is like tax shelter funded, you know, and I'm so glad it was because those are yeah, absolutely. Movies. Like and Bob Bob Clark also, like you know, without the tax shelters, we wouldn't have had any of those films made at all. And now these films are getting restorations that some of even the major Canadian classics aren't even getting, and uh, historical context on special features. Uh, it's been great to see so many exploitation films coming out, and uh, I had no idea you coined that term because it is the perfect term for that era of filmmaking. Um, are there are there any that haven't come out yet that that you want the boutique labels to go? Come on, guys, why isn't X out yet? I know Jason Eisner's big one was Siege, and now Siege has a beautiful disc. Jeez, <laughs> um, I, I guess one that I I would really like to see come out is um, the Vindicator, John Claude Lord's 1980s. Uh, it's like a it's basically RoboCop, but it was made actually before RoboCop, and it's got a bit of a more of a horror element to it. That's a film that I, I think was coming. Kino had it at one point, but I but I think the um, rights fell through or or something happened on it. Um, it just never um, never officially. Uh, came out i yeah i don't know it's hard to say like there's there's just a ton of of you know there's stuff cut there's still more coming like i once in a while i hear about oh you should you know don't say anything but I, this is gonna come the skip tracer is another one that i a favorite film of mine from vancouver from the 1970s it's not not totally genre it's more of a um tragic uh, drama kind of, yeah downbeat thriller kind of that's you know a company in toronto's is, is is working to put that out as well so yeah i mean it's it's been crazy like to think about um you know films that i used to you know i when i made my list out of the psychotronic book like all, all those films that i would go through and i would be like oh man i'm just never i'm never even going to see that and and now 30 years later i can get copy of rituals delivered on my doorstep like and you can actually make out what's happening in the, in the <laughs> video now of rituals. You can tell what's happening. Yeah, exactly. But it's amazing. Mean, Twenty years ago, it was I was just like, it's a write-off. Like I'm never going to see this movie. Like forget it. Like I'll put it on the list, but I mean, the chances of me actually catching it are pretty minuscule. So. Well, yeah, I just remember that VHS scan that was going around, and like I'd say, twenty percent of the movie you can't see. What's yeah, all the stuff, the climactic stuff, all in the dark. There is just literally just black. But yeah, that Blu-ray is beautiful, man. That movie, oh, so good. 
you know, even even those films like Stings and and Science Crazed, Little Devils is another one. Like these are these were films that were so obscure, so so few of them made, so few tapes even made at the time. Barely anyone saw them at the time, and now it's just it's a you know it's very they're very accessible, and and I think you know that's that's just a great thing. Uh, you know, I know that having my site has, has probably <laughs> helped to some degree to get some of that stuff out. It, it definitely has shone some lights on some films, but you know, to me, it's not really, it's not really me that's doing it. It's, it, you know, these companies are, might see something on my site and say that, well, that looks interesting. Let's check that out. Or, or, you know, I'll write about something and cult fandom will kind of, you know, start buzzing about it or whatever. I guess that's, I mean, that's how science craze happened. I, I had done an interview on things for the things disc that intervision put out and they and i think i mentioned science crazed in my little interview and that set a bunch of guys off looking for science crazed i mean that's kind of just how it happens sometimes so yeah i I don't i mean there's just there's there's tons of great stuff that's that's you know continuing to come out i i don't know if there's anything that i'm that at this point that i'm really wishing would come out but uh, uh, there's definitely stuff that's never been found that I would love to, I would love. I know you can't say, but maybe can you blink twice if you've heard of any notion of uh, heavenly bodies coming out on a disc of some sort? No, no, but that's, that is a great one. I, I haven't, but that is a great, uh, that's a great choice. I would love also, I would also love to see uh, that come out. Or the other VHS you sent me fly in with, uh, with Keanu Reeves <laughs> and Olivia Dabo. I'd love to see that one too. <laughs> that, yeah, that one I'm surprised hasn't, hasn't, hasn't come but uh um heavenly bodies i you you gotta think that someone would would want to put that out i wonder if it's the soundtrack maybe the soundtrack is there's so many big bands on that anyway that might be a nightmare yeah i i I don't you know some of the other films that like i think that it was kind of a playboy robert lantos production and i don't think any of the others have uh, have come out either so I, I don't it's also possible it's just like nobody's bought the library or nobody or the rights to the library or, or they don't want to sell them or something like that william fruitt's bedroom eyes is, is part of that library too but again that that film's never come out you'd think it would yeah well i know you've had such a huge impact on the way that these films are contextualized and you mentioned science crazed which was put out by videonomicon which is tyler baptiste's company and i know You've been extremely influential to him and you've been extremely influential to many people, including Rhett and I. So I'd like to thank you for all the great work that you do and for joining us for this chat, Paul. Great. Thank you. The dancing, rocking, reach for a dream movie that won't stop until it takes you to the top. Heavenly Body. Rated up. Starts Friday. Check newspapers for a theater near you. Brett Berg is a Los Angeles-based film, music, and video creative director and curator with a finger of the pulse, some of the coolest, strangest video content out there. He's currently the theatrical sales director for the American Genre Film Archive, the host and brains behind the Museum of Home Video, and bassist for the band Nilbog. I'd like to thank Brett for joining us for this chat today. Wait, wait, that's Goblin spelled backwards, right? (laughs) You'll have to ask Brett. (laughs) Berg, thank you so much for joining us on the CuffCast. Can you talk a bit about uh, your title at AGFA and what the American Genre Film Archive does? Sure. Well, I'll start with AGFA. Um, We were founded in the late 2000s 
as a nonprofit to deal with Alamo Drafthouse's film print collection. And in the intervening 12, 13 years, um, we've expanded to be a theatrical distributor for other partners, some of our home video label partners like Arrow, Severin, Vinegar Syndrome, Shout Factory. And then also AGFA does its own in-house Blu-ray label. We do our own restorations and preservations. And uh, we've also uh, broken into the streaming arena by doing like one-off events. And uh, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot going on. It originally started as an arm of the Alamo Drafthouse movie theater chain, but now it is its own separate entity. And how, how much of the formation was a result of uh, acquiring the Something Weird catalog or the partnership with Something Weird? Um, the Something Weird partnership happened in, I think, um, 2014 or 15, something like that. The label Something Weird was winding down its production at the end of a very fruitful 20 plus years. And um, uh, its founder, Mike Vraney, had passed away. So um, Lisa Petrucci, who uh, ran the label with Mike that whole time, um, was just looking to preserve the legacy of the label and Agfa seemed like a really good fit because we're like-minded souls and we were into all the same movies and we are an archive. So we just transferred the materials from one archive to another, basically. And we are the custodians of the Something Weird legacy at this point, to the point where we are now doing a full restoration of the entire Doris Wishman catalog, which will be out sometime next year. Fantastic. Um, so I've had some pleasant dealings with you in the past when we're booking the Cuff Halloween marathons or some of our one-off screenings of the, some of the best classic cult films of all time. Uh, and your role is with the distribution of these films, getting them out to audiences' eyes? Yeah, so I am ACFA's head of theatrical. I am the liaison between all the venues, both in North America and internationally, and ACFA's theatrical catalog. So my day job consists of a hemorrhaging inbox at any time with people asking for how to book Reanimator, Donnie Darko, Ringu, Tammy and the T-Rex, Deep Red, Bird with the Crystal Plumage. I, I could go on and on. Our catalog is about 1,300 titles at this point to rep to theaters. And so do you have much of a say in the trends of what titles are acquired? Can you see kind of what the world is wanting to show theatrically and, and whisper to some folks like maybe we should strike a deal for X? I think that what the world is clamoring for is more horror films and perhaps at this point, it seems to be less exploitation films. Like horror is universal, horror is timeless, but a lot of the drive and exploitation stuff is very fixed at a certain point in time. So it seems like horror out of our catalog is what people respond to the most. In terms of our acquisitions, they come to us in two different ways. We can either seek them out or the labels we work for push titles towards us where, you know, we have an open agreement with several labels where anything they get theatrical rights on get transferred to us. So it's a big um, swimming pool filled with an incredibly random wide selection of horror, cult, and art house. And uh, we have gone after certain things in the past because coming from exhibition myself previous to distribution, I remembered when certain, or our entire team remembers when certain films were harder to book, like Phantasm, for example. You had to go to Don Coscarelli directly to email Don and say, hey, can I book your movie? And the funny thing he told me, which I'll always remember, is like, yeah, it's like, I just got tired of sending my nephew to FedEx. 
So we, we just took that on and, and we've been doing that slowly, sequentially through a lot of like fan favorites that we realized were out of the marketplace that we wanted to bring back into. What most recently we started working with Troma and sometimes Troma would take some time to get back to you. But now like we've taken on that catalog and that is as easy to book as all the rest. Yeah, that's great news to hear because I know folks really loved when we showed graduation day from y'all a few years back. So it's awesome to hear you've got more of those sweet, sweet trauma titles. Now, uh, on the physical side of AGFA, do you have a favorite of the physical AGFA disc releases? <laughs> Absolutely. Bat Pussy. <laughs> Man, I, that is so out of print right now. And I didn't, wasn't cool enough to have bought it the first round. So I got to find it again. But what, what about Bat Pussy makes that one of your favorites? Just the fact that we spend any time on it at all, it's hilarious because it is one of the most anti-movie movies that I think I've ever seen. For those who don't know this one, it is a late 60s slash early 70s X-rated title, but it takes on the dimensions of a like an early Warhol film because they're not really there to have sex. They're there to yell at each other. And uh, there's a lot of off-camera noise and direction so that every time someone off-camera is like, well, turn that way, they like mute the audio and then bring the audio <laughs> back later. Um, and the two, the two leads are incredibly uncharismatic and uncool and unsexy, but it just makes for something, I'm not going to say it's like Warhol or John Waters because it's not, it's its own thing, but it lives in the same universe of these are performers living their life. And it's like, is this a performance? Is this real life? You know? That's beautiful. Uh, one of one of my personal favorites might be Wicked World, and we also have Paul Corp on uh, this episode. To, we did talk a bit about the work of Barry Gillis, but uh, did Wicked World do nice enough for y'all that maybe we could expect a future Barry acquisition? Because he's got this great movie called The Killing Games that many people haven't seen yet, but once you see it, you will remember it for the rest of your life. Well, I, I mean, I think that is that is the trend with all Barry Gillis movies, that once you see them, you cannot unsee them. Uh, I believe Wicked World is out of print right now. And a couple of our titles have fallen out of print. It's funny, we get an email once or twice a day at this point, like, when are you going to put Bat Pussy back in print? When are you going to put Wicked World back in print? We never thought these things would go out of print because we never thought we would sell thousands of them. But now that AGFA is old enough, and I think our catalog is big enough that people, when they hear of a new title, they'll just go back to the catalog and go, oh my God, there's these 40 other, 30 other things that just look really cool. And then a couple of them have slipped out of print. Maybe we'll bring them back. Maybe we won't. We haven't quite decided or, or figured out the money part of that yet. I will say that our move to Vinegar Syndrome as a distributor for our discs has been the best possible thing we could have done. Yeah, they've got such a great little business up there with their partner labels. And um, it's uh, yeah, shout out to Vinegar Syndrome. You're doing a lot of good for a lot of very strange and unusual films. Um, so I've, I want to give you props first to AGFA for adapting to the pandemic with their community outreach. And y'all were doing um, so many Zoom seminars to keep the community together because a lot of folks, you, you know, usually get to hobnob at film festivals. And you uh, had a beautiful fundraiser where you showed Limbo as well as a bunch of short films from the catalog. Did you see uh, during the pandemic more of a community form outside of major cities for these types of films by companies being forced to now present to the world instead of planning for like theatrical exhibitions? In March 2020, because I'm the head of theatrical, in March 2020, I saw a precipitous drop in bookings and a precipitous increase in cancellations. So our theatrical revenue diminished to about 1 20th of what it used to be. 
And we were trying to do little uh, virtual bookings here and there. And it was really difficult at the beginning because virtual cinema in 2020 was an evolution. And in 2021, it's only, I think, now gotten into the point where things are settling down, like audiences can settle down into it. But now IRL is opening back up again. So venues are questioning whether virtual is like a, a thing anymore or not. I definitely saw a huge up in our home video sales. So I don't know if that's our community building, but it's definitely the word is getting out about AGFA. And I personally and AGFA as an organization just wholeheartedly embraced streaming and live streamed events because it's just it's just the substitute. It's the thing you can do that replaces the IRL and gives the closest feeling to that. So we've just done a lot of that. And yes, we've seen a really fascinating community form around those, both from our theatrical clients and just disc buyers in the world who like us and they track all the other labels too. So I guess the short answer to your question is yes. <laughs> well, this is the perfect segue to the Museum Home Video, which was one of my favorite creature comforts during the pandemic, along with cartoonist Kayfabe and Joe Bob Briggs. It was it brought light and joy to my week. And I have noticed that your chat is so nice and accepting and celebratory. The chats during the Twitch streams, it feels like there is an online community building that feels similar to something like the Alamo Draft House, um, the community that would have existed in real life there. So do you see this streaming adapting to the world reopening again, or do you feel most folks are going to go back to just programming for real world events? I think streamed events is here to stay as a complement to IRL, regardless of where COVID takes the world, because the tools are inexpensive or free. The audience is there. Like we just did a webinar on the subject, Agfa did a webinar on the subject of how to improve your movie marathons if you do movie marathons at your venue. That was at noon on a Thursday. So it's not like we're gonna have those in real life at noon. Like the virtual space is perfect for bringing together people in the middle of their workday playing hooky or functional, whatever. Um, in terms of the Museum of Home Video, we have no plans to stop once IRL comes into the picture. We're going to go on tour. We treat IRL as a complement to the streaming rather than the other way around, I think. So almost like what uh, Nick and Joe are doing with Found Footage? Yeah, like Found Footage Fest is, is right back out there <laughs> doing live events and touring. I see that they're coming to LA next month. And uh, we're going to be doing that kind of thing. And they haven't stopped doing their online shows. I think that's part of their Patreon, right? Yeah, we've done two years of virtual shows with them during the pandemic. And it's just, I mean, it's not just as great. You don't get to drink with the boys afterwards, but it's still a very nice event. Um, so can you talk a bit about uh, the Museum of Home Video and some of the special events that y'all put on? I know Faster Piece is one of my favorite segments of the Museum of Home Video, but can you give a breakdown for listeners at home? Sure. The Museum of Home Video is found at museumofhomevideo.com and also twitch.tv slash Museum of Home Video. It started out as a weekly 90-minute found footage variety show on my part every Tuesday night, 7.30 p.m. Pacific. Let me back up and talk about my background first. My own found footage journey started 20 years ago when I started managing a specialty video store in Los Angeles called Cinephile Video, which is actually still there, funny enough. Uh, it, survived, it survived COVID, it survived multiple owners, it survived the death of the video store. And it is located on the corner of Santa Monica and Sautel next to the New Art Movie Theater, which is one of the landmark chains. And we had 40,000 titles. And from the beginning, I learned to, oh, 
I should keep ripping all these DVDs because, you know, I would love to keep the best of the best from, for myself and for other people to use in the future. And then after Cinephile Video, I moved on to a venue here in LA. A, I don't know what words to describe this scandal-plagued place, but it was a place called Cinefamily. I don't know if you've heard about this. Yeah, they had some infamous Troll 2 screenings early on uh, in the Troll 2 renaissance. Yeah, and unfortunately, it was a place that imploded in a Me Too nightmare on top of other abuse craziness, which is like its whole other whole other podcast episode, but we won't get into that. And I believe that Museum of Home Video is a direct reaction to seeing how much of an edgelord I was back then and seeing how much of our aesthetic as a venue that worked a lot with found footage kind of like we were pretty mean to our audience and we weren't very community focused, even though we were a pretend nonprofit organization, basically. So I left Cine Family, started doing live shows in LA that were just like a lecture show where I would have guests come in and do PowerPoints for 30 minutes on pop culture topics. This morphed into wanting to do Museum of Home Video as a live, just an IRL show back before streaming was the thing we were all thinking about. It was going to be in June 2020 and it was all perfect. I had it all set up in LA with a with a live venue that was going to let me do it every Saturday afternoon because I'm a big believer in the Saturday afternoon slot. And then COVID happened. So me and my producer, Jenny Nixon, we just slid our expectations over to Twitch rather than IRL because it was what we could do. And now, yeah, now it has its own viewership and we're going to bring it IRL regularly at some point. But I guess I should answer what the fuck this show is. So this show is uh, the result of me collecting found footage for 20 years and thinking that um, I needed to start watching this stuff. I'm sure you both of you are familiar with this. As a collector, you collect stuff without watching it. You know, <laughs> all the time. Yeah. You buy discs without watching them. And I'm guilty of this too. But in the download world, it's just too easy to fill a 20 terabyte hard drive full of stuff. So now I have 50 terabytes worth of stuff and I'm like, what the fuck do I do with this? So I decided to disseminate it through this weekly show. And this is unaired pilots. This is like wacky news stuff. This is cut downs of movies that I would never want to show you in their entirety, but I would definitely want to show you a 15 minute version. This is like bloopers. This is um, unaired stuff. This is I, a few weeks ago, I showed a 90 minute radio air check at the end, just because I was like, can, can people stand watching radio with me in the chat box? And it turns out, yes, they can. I'm modeling this entire thing show and I guess the channel at large on Weird Al's UHF because it turns out the most influential movie to me as a kid was not 2001, was not Eraserhead, was not Solaris or Stalker. It was UHF because look what I'm doing now. I'm running a channel that has five different shows and they're all based around the idea of like you know, showing weird shit. So here we are. And I, I do want a quick uh, segue for Death Blade. I believe that's what the action series was called. I just watched the first installment with the Wingshauser film, uh, Art of Dying. And I had no idea that Wings also directed movies for PM Entertainment. So I need to find all of those. But from Zach's intro, it sounds like you're a bit of a PM aficionado. Can you talk about your love of PM Entertainment and, and help spread the good word? Well, I, I'm actually new to this whole thing. And the person who's been probably the most PM Entertainment forward in my life is is probably your friend, Peter Kaplowski, you know, Peter? Yeah, love Peter. Who uh, programs at, at TIFF. And he was just on me for years, like, you gotta watch these PM Entertainment movies, you gotta watch these. And then when Zach Carlson and Laird Jimenez 
and Austin started the show on the museum channel called Death Blade, they went right to that aesthetic. And I am, again, new to it, sort of, even though it's funny, I'm from L.A. and I'm a child of the 80s, but I'm only seeing these movies now, really. What I appreciate about them is their absolute lawlessness when it comes to, like, movie form. I'm sure they got permits to do all those stunts, but just the lawlessness of the movie-making rules itself is really special. And I love stunts, and the fact that they're so stunt-forward is really exciting. You know, some of the best stuntmen in Hollywood were given, like, a vacation job by doing these, like, kind of lawless stunts. We've been watching Ricochet and Rage, the Gary Daniels movies on Amazon Prime, 2 p.m. ones. And the, the car chases are amazing. Like, and they actually hold the camera, too. They, destroying lampposts. Like, the world is actually being destroyed there with those stunts that are happening. And they're long shots, too. So you believe it and you feel oh, like yeah. they're not just cutting into sparks and stuff. You're out, you're watching cranes fall. Or a guy getting chucked out of a window, like, 10 stories high. What was Zach saying? You call it the value of violence? You have a metric system for the PM Entertainment movies. That's not me, but that sounds like a Zachism. Okay. <laughs> it was the craziest intro, man. I just watched it a couple nights ago. It was like the value of violence for PM entertainment movies is hard to beat. Yeah. Zach is the Einstein of action movies in terms of presenting them and getting people excited about them. He knows the formula, the right things to say to get people interested in things that they wouldn't have never previously been interested in before. I love Zach Carlson. He's taught me a lot. And it's an honor for me to have him on the channel because I believe it's a continuum of people that enjoy this kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's great yeah, to have people. it's a people really nice hub of people you've brought together. Um, can we talk about the faster piece cuts? Because it's such a brilliant idea. I'm sure. thinking particularly about the boys on the side edit, a movie that, you know, you might want to watch as like, a time capsule of like where the world was at then, but you have to put up with an hour of like fluff dialogue. So you essentially go in and just grab the juiciest moments, but still construct a narrative around it. Was this something you were doing before or is this something you just did for the show? This is something I did for the show, although a proto idea for Museum of Home Video as a show was rooted in the idea of doing faster piece theater as the show. There's a fellow broadcaster and also fellow LA film fan, Scott Whiteman, of the podcast Boys Bible Study, which if the two of you have, and if your audience has not listened to yet, you should all totally get into. It's another film fan centric show, but entirely through the lens of outsider Christian films. And there's a there's hundreds of them and they're finding them all and they're contextualizing and cataloging them all. But Scott and I, a few years ago, thought, well, wouldn't it be great to do a live show where we just, as programmers, I'm sure you're very aware of this, right? There's some movies where like you personally like them, but you would never subject a paying audience to them. This is a way to bridge that gap where you can put the best of the best or the best of the worst in front of people and have them not be bored by a movie that would definitely ask, have them ask for a refund if they had bought a ticket. It's so great that you're holding up a mirror to the recent future. Like some of these almost feel like memories and, oh, maybe maybe that much hasn't changed culturally. But then, oh boy, uh, so much has changed culturally even in 10 years from some of these clips you've been showing, even in two years from some of the clips you've been showing. So it's provided this really great pop culture overview of just like how quickly trends change and styles and what was once acceptable or progressive is now dated and awkward. 
Yeah, retrograde even. So I I think that a big plus of my show for anyone who shares my political views is that the show is explicitly political, but it but I don't like but I don't say that at the top nor do I say it routinely. I think it's felt in the material and it's also I will bring it up, you know, all I said plenty against Trump last year. And I have plenty left to say about things that are completely tanking my country to the point where we're no better than, you know, people at, at like the prehistory age, basically. But it's woven into the show in such a way that if you're not really paying attention, you wouldn't even notice it. But if you are prone to my own political views, then like you'll see that stuff coming out in the material in droves, especially men's treatment of women, whites' treatment of people of color, like. You would be fucking floored about how much blackface there was on UK television in the 90s. You know, there's just a lot of it. I mean, I and I edit two thirds of that out while keeping one third in because keeping a morsel of it in is way more palatable than keeping like all of it in. Like, the, you, again, you wouldn't come back to see the show if I kept all of it in. But if I keep like 15% of it in, it, it, it shows off the message but doesn't make you wallow in it as an audience member. You get enough of it to understand. And how much are you still working on the archive? Like, because there is still some fresh material. I'm thinking of the music video you showed from GTA clips just this past week, which was kind of amazing. I was like, at first I was like, what is this? And then I was mesmerized and the song was like provocative and hard. And the repetition of the GTA clips added like this very surreal element where at first I was smiling that you showed this video. And then I was like, I was shook. I was like, oh, right. That's what this songs about and this is the outlet for the guys that are experiencing this culture so that's obviously a newer clip are you constantly adding to the archive and if so how do you seek out uh, new content i am constantly constantly looking for new stuff because i do believe that there is no end to it i mean we're talking about all of recorded human history there's bound to be plenty of new things that are new to us that we can keep discovering whether it's from 1920 or 2020 I believe in finding the right things that string all together to make it all feel like it's one show. I remember, yeah, my second episode, I had showed a Tyler, the creator performance from the Grammys that had happened six months prior. It's really, really important to me as someone who's not getting any younger. I'm 42 as of this recording. And I can easily slip it. Okay. So two thirds of my show is stuff that's from like my childhood zone, 70s to 90s. But I try really, really hard to add in brand new things or 2000s things because I know that there are viewers younger than me who will eventually get bored with, okay, here's another 80s thing. Here's another 80s thing. So I'm like, what 2010s thing can I pull in and throw in there? What 2000s thing will just floor everybody because everyone's forgotten about that time and no one's become nostalgic for it yet. I'm recalling that there was a, a short-lived TV show, and I showed a, a cutdown of an episode, and the show is called Century City. And it's very resonant for me because I grew up in the west side of LA, and there is a Century City that this is based on. And it was a future dystopia law and order type show. It was fascinating. It's all on YouTube. It was one season, and it was Viola Davis fronting this like law show that was about the year like 2025, and all the ethical issues of that time. It was kind of like Black Mirror meets LA Law. <laughs> and there's this one episode about eugenics and gay children. And I was like, this is so fucking amazing. There's no way I'm not showing this. And so I cut it down to 10 minutes. 
And I think those things really go a long way to making the show feel like it's not stuck in an 80s ghetto. Yeah, that shit is always weird. Yeah, shit's or, always been weird. Shit will continue to be weird. Hollywood movies are weird still. They're so weird. Have you seen Monster Trucks, this $100 million Paramount? Oh, I know. It was like the design of that. It's I, That was a movie of two heads. It was very strange. It's like it's a cute creature that's a giant octopus who's also a monster truck. <laughs> and we're making fun of Toxic Crusaders and G.I. Joe when this is like <laughs> how many millions of dollars went into monster trucks. I know. And just like the marketing department have to like find new ways to get excited, to get the public excited about monster trucks. It's just all so weird. And then at the same time, the same studio releases uh, Annihilation, which is one of the most brain bleed, like how did this get made movies in the last 10 years, I think. Yeah. So it's like, what's going on in Hollywood? <laughs> well, congrats on one year. And I'm really happy to see that you'll continue with the Museum of Home Video. Can you talk about how folks can access the uh, older episodes? Oh, sure. Yeah. As we're recording this, I am in the middle of a one week fundraiser drive, kind of like, I don't know if you have this in Canada, but in America, public broadcasting is entirely listener supported at this point, or mostly. So there's long periods where like on TV, they have to literally beg for money for like a week. Do you have that up there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Folks will do it, or at least it will, you know, we know of the Jerry Lewis telethons and uh, there's there's a lot of grants in Canada, so I don't and people wouldn't actually watch a Canadian funding drive, I don't think. But Justin DeClue just did one for his uh, Golden Ninja video, his uh, DVD distribution service out in Toronto, and it was a very cool telethon, very much inspired by the great Agfa one that y'all did. Oh, that's cool. I'm glad. I'm glad that this is all kind of circularly. Is it sad to say it's circulating like a virus in an air conditioning unit? <laughs> it's all it's all cross pollinating, and um, there was no rule book in March of 2020 for what to do in terms of creating new things. And um, I am so grateful that anyone pays attention to Museum of Home Video and also what ACT is doing because it makes me think that our instincts are correct. Like we have good business instincts and good cultural instincts, and we're putting them together and. Um, giving people ideas to then go off and do their thing. Yeah. And folks can contribute to your Patreon to get all of the old content. Yes. And it's it's quite inexpensive for the Museum of Home Video stuff, but you're going to want the full meal deal, folks. You're going to want all of it. So do the premium subscription. So we're in the middle of this week-long Patreon subscription drive because I noticed that our subscriptions were plateauing and I was like, fuck, what do we do to really juice this? And I was like, okay, we'll do a fundraiser week. What would Jerry do? What would Jerry do? But also, like, what would I have done at Agfa? Like, what would we do to turn things around? You know, I'm. I, I feel this. I feel like a social worker because I think that a lot of the things that I make or participate in have a direct uh, community benefit. And if more people thought that way, then our word will be better, and uh, people would have more empathy, and we wouldn't be seeing what we have in the U.S. where. Um, you can clearly now quantify the percentage of Americans that don't have empathy. Yes. Well, you are. Yeah, it's crazy because you are creating an empathy machine with this. And I, I'm going to address the community you're creating again, too, because these types of events used to be reserved strictly for the Alamo Draft House or some cool venues in L.A. or New York. And folks in Calgary would have to create their own. Um, and so now that people can be inspired by other folks online who are being so generous with this information and content and inspiration that you're right. I do believe that there's going to be this great sense of empathy and community that comes as a result of this 
terrible uh, last year and a half. So thanks for doing your part. But most, last but not least, what's Nilbog doing these days, Brett? Oh, God, I wish we could play. Oh, my God. So uh, <laughs> Cameron's referring to this uh, uh, this band that I've been in on and off over the last uh, 10 plus years called Nilbog, which is a horror movie music cover band. And we've only gotten to play uh, eight to 10 times in as many years because <laughs> as people get as people get older, it gets harder to schedule rehearsals. And so just being in the same room is super tough. So if we can, it was an excuse to hang out, but it was also like the same thing as Museum of Home Video. You know, we know this material, so we're going to play Goblin or Carpenter or Morricone like an orchestra would, where we are recreating it rather than spinning it. We did the soundtrack to a recent documentary by Rodney Asher, the guy who did Room 237. It's called the El Duce Tapes. And funny enough, a, doc a documentary using archival footage from the 80s from tapes needed a modern doom metal type soundtrack so we did that <laughs> there's a special feature on the band on that disc as well i i that was one of my favorite blu-ray releases of last year the el duce tapes that movie is crazy man you feel it on your skin like i feel like i gotta take a shower right now just thinking about that crazy crazy movie um yeah that score was amazing man so i do hope that Nilbog gets uh, some time together once the world resets. Hey, wait, is Nilbog Goblin spelled backwards? Oh, yeah. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I heard it's a nice, a nice place to visit that town. Yeah, there's, a, there's lots of, lots of good corn there, and what other kind of organic food? The eggs aren't supposed to be very good. Oh, though. right, I heard that. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Brett, and uh, folks at home. Yeah, be sure to check out Museum Home Video and uh, follow Agfa on Facebook. It seems you're most active in terms of getting the word out. I would say Instagram at this point. Our creative Instagram. director, Josie Imba, is really is a, is a master of Instagram at this point. All right. Follow Ag on Instagram. And where should folks follow you for a museum home video? Uh, well, I would say also Instagram.com slash museum of home video is a great place to start or twitch.tv slash museum of home video. Um, before we jump off, did you say Paul Korup was the guest that's also on this episode? Yes, yeah, yeah, because uh, Rhett used to write for Canucksploitation, and it's very foundational in our uh, appreciation of these types of movies, because I don't know if you know how Canadian tax shelter movies used to be viewed, uh, but now folks love them, whereas we were horror fans coming up in the 90s where people were like, hey, don't you remember when our government made all that crap, wasted all the money on this crap? And uh, yeah. like Paul, we were like, well, what is this crap? And it turns out the crap's better than what they were deeming as gold at the time, so. I know, okay, so you, this is not a, a, a feature of Museum of Home Video that I advertise, but I have been for the last uh, 10, 15 years, a super duper fan of Canadian tax shelter cinema. I would say Canadian cinema from 1970 to 1990, it's a good window. And I want to, if I ever get to write a book someday, I wanna write a book about Canadian cinema of that time from an American perspective, because every single, because of the financial conditions of the tax shelter, at least for a certain period of time, every single fucking Canadian movie, no matter what genre, was an art movie because the financial considerations weren't there. And, or, or like this movie has a grant behind it. So like that, it doesn't matter if this even gets finished or comes out or whatever. So it results in some of the weirdest cinema ever to have been filmed. And all that stuff is is like the deep exploitation era. Like my absolute favorite is The Rubber Gun, even though it's not a oh, tax shelter movie. Beautiful. Alan Moyle was involved in that film? He directed it, I think. Directed yeah. it? 
I love the Stephen Lack. Yeah, is so good in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Deadline is another hot one that I've always oh, yeah. enjoyed. And now that it's on Blu-ray, I, can't, I cannot believe it's on Blu-ray. And I have it in my theatrical catalog. Also, it's fucking nuts. Uh, Sudden Fury is another one where oh, yeah. we rep it, and there's a restoration, not restored yet. Someone's got to do Murder by Phone. Oh yeah. But like, I'm deep in on this, and we could have a conversation another time. Pinball Summers is the one that we really want a Blu-ray of. Pinball Summers is one that we've been trading and uh, it's the, there were so many sex comedies made at the time that they have this innocent this innocence to them but they still deliver the goods as well and i find that makes for the best teen sex comedy so there were a lot of great teen sex comedies that came out of canada at that time that aren't being rediscovered yet because as you said yeah there's a huge appetite for horror on the boutique label but i'm hungry for the for the crown international teen sex comedies and uh, joysticks and stuff like yeah. that, it feels like the horror fans, you got to pivot a bit to so that we can get these Crown Internationals and these Canadian uh, classics out, out on uh, the equal treatment, with equal treatment. It's all about the economics of it. If a label decides, oh, we can or cannot sell 5,000 units of this, they will make the expenditure. And is that movie in a library that we are just acquiring whole versus do we have to go after certain titles one by one. I know Vinegar Syndrome is now reaching out and uh, Severin too is reaching out into the major studio licensing world like Arrow has. And it's an, it's an interesting world. I love being in the epicenter of just watching what goes out. So you guys have a Canadian tax shelter movie in Prom Night 2 in your collection. What label has that? Like, yeah, is that going to come out? Prom Night I want Prom Night 2. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, that's in our, I believe that's in our 35 millimeter archive. And it's one of the more rented titles from us. I think there is a theatrical rights holder in the U.S., but there's no Blu-ray yet. Because, you know, the, the theater rights and then the home video rights are so, they're just walled off a lot of the time. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think enough people want Prom Night 2. That would sell 5,000 copies. Oh. Pinball Summer? <laughs> 1,000 <Eight>. copies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, thanks again for joining us, Brett. It was so nice to chat with you, man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would, I would, we got to talk more about Canadian movies someday. Everything from going down the road to Scanners 3. Yeah, it's, there's an earnestness that was a result of them, you're right, being outsider regional art movies that were trying to hit a uh, drive-in circuit or like a exploitation route. Yeah, here, we'll pose it to you because we posed it to Paul and he said, well, you know what? I would have had an answer before, but now my answer is they're just like another regional film. They're like a Texas regional film or a Wisconsin regional film. But I don't know, maybe from an outsider, how would you notice those Canadian tax shelter movies being different? And you kind of maybe said the the, the money side of things, that there's not uh, an incentive to profitize from it because it's just wasted money or either a tax write-off or something. But Well, I mean, it is true. Like if you if you had $2 million and, and you were a Canadian dentist and you wanted to funnel it through a tax shelter, you made a movie in 1979. So it just creates this bizarre thing. But also a lot, not all of them, I would say 50% of all Canadian movies of the time are trying to impersonate America town somehow. And then the other half are just resolutely like young street confidential, basically just like <laughs> yeah. we're in the thick of like Canada. So uh, I don't know. There's something about the fact that it is foreign yet so familiar to me, um, especially the only home video releases of a lot of these movies are at a time when the home video boom was exploding and labels just needed stuff to release. And so it's just a great bounty of stuff that's tape only at that time. It's really a shame. 
like the rubber gun. Like, why the fuck isn't there even a DVD of the rubber gun? Oh, it was crazy. We got to see uh, the Calgary Cinematheque brought in Alan Moyle, Alan King, and there was mm. one more because all those dudes were making movies at the same time and helping out on each other's films. Yeah, it was just this beautiful retrospective because they were all in their 70s watching these supremely avant-garde movies they made in Montreal when they were all hippies. And they were so happy that they got to watch them with people because a lot of these tax shelter movies, the point was to not have them released. You didn't want them to make a profit because you didn't want to have to start paying taxes again on those movies. So a lot of them are very under the radar still but it's just beautiful that yeah there's an appetite for them in the states like we were so proud that peanut butter solution got a severin release because in canada that's like a badge of honor oh that was yeah you were helping with that I, i'm not gonna say i'm the only person who said this to him over the years but david lives in la and severin's in la so we have lunch sometimes and there was a lunch where it was like me and him and Joe Rubin from Vinegar Syndrome and uh, Kayla Janice was there and then a couple other people were there. Oh, Lisa from Something Weird was there. It was like one of those like wow. co- congresses or something. Yeah. And at the in the middle of it, I was like, I've always got titles that I would love to have Agfa release theatrically, but I don't want to do any of the legwork and I want to make somebody else do it so that I can eventually just have a title th- like hang out in the library. I tr- I was seated next to David at this lunch at this Mexican restaurant. And I just looked him in the eye and I went, you know, you should really do the peanut butter solution. And he's like, oh yeah. And then they started doing this whole kids label apparently. <laughs> and then he like asked a couple other people, was like peanut butter solution. And they're like, oh yeah, peanut butter solution. So <laughs> I lo- I stared at him at lunch and I went peanut butter solution. Do and it. he, and he did it. And, and there you go. Cause that cre- that they launched a full line at lineup there around around, around one of these solutions well, around the film that traumatized every Canadian youth <laughs> that went yeah. to school in the eighties. I'm English speaking, but I went to French immersion, and that was the movie we watched at least five times to learn French. We would watch that film to to learn. And you were always excited when he got to rub the solution in <laughs> the under pubes. the pants. Yeah, I was every like, I'm gonna grow cubes like... like this man one day. Yeah. <laughs> That was a crazy thing about being a kid. You were like, I can't wait to have pubes. It was like this almost wish fulfillment moment of that scene <laughs> turned nightmare. I I was traumatized as well because it was run on HBO in a certain number of years a lot. And then apparently it was also in random video stores a lot. So a certain late, like me, late, late Gen X, we all just like got hammered in the US with this movie. If you were That's like awesome. a movie kid. Yeah. Well, there's many more. There's a whole series of those films. That Tales for All. Yeah, they're all Tommy Tricker and the Stamp Collector and uh, the Dog Who Stopped the War. Christmas Martian is probably the weirdest one if you've never seen Original that Jacob Tutu's messed up. Wasn't that them? And uh, the, the Hood and Peg. Yeah, yeah. Rock Demer. Rock Demer. Yes. Rock Demer. So uh, we had him out for a screening of Peanut Butter Solution at Center Family. We blew a ton of money and flew him out. And he was this 80-year-old man. I, I can't believe he's still alive because he was 80 then. And I did this, I did the Q&A of Peanut Butter Solution in LA with him. And I just straight, I said, do you think this movie is weird? And he goes, no. And I involuntarily said, really? (laughs) (laughs) 
because he was like, this is this is childhood. This is like the, the terrors of childhood you have to get kids used to. There's a French sensibility, like French Canadian sensibility that is really weird. Like, I mean, to us and in even English speaking Canada, peanut butter solution is probably the weirdest, but there's a lot of other weird, like again, Christmas Martian was the his first one that he sort of made. And it's it's a short, it's only about 65 minutes or something like oh, that. Oh, I've seen it. I've seen the it. Pro, yeah, the proto ET, right? But like that one is like, what the hell is like that alien is like fishnet stockings and he loves smarties and what? And there's a lot of uh, <laughs> yeah, all the digital beep drawing on the film to make a digital sound kind of thing. Yeah, it's it is an avant-garde film for children, which is yeah. which, which is what Rock Demare specialized in. Mm -hmm. And part of his history pre-movie making was he directed like the the Montreal Children's Film Festival, which was apparently the largest children's film festival in the world back at a time when you had a bunch of those, I suppose. And he became a distributor of movies that he was programming in the festival to international territories. And that's where he made his money. And then he started making movies. Oh, fascinating. Fascinating, dude. Cool. Well, thanks again, Brett. We'll chat later, man. Thank okay. you. Yeah. Later. Golden Boys Report. Cameron's doing this one. Uh, so, for the last Golden Boys screening, we uh, were celebrating the birth of the one and only Rhett Miller in the uh, basement of an apartment complex in a private screening room where we had to fiddle with the cables and play the audio from the projector speakers because the surround sound system just wouldn't work for some reason. And I mean, this movie needed surround. Like, it's one of those, uh, you know, high produced. So we watched Champagne and Bullets, a.k.a. Road to Revenge, a.k.a. Get Even, from the one and only John DeHart. Uh, you haven't heard of his name before? I, well, I, uh... <laughs> Should be a household name, but he, he isn't somehow. He wants to be a household name. <laughs> You but, might have heard his name if you were uh, getting sued by someone. He was a mm -hmm. very prominent lawyer. Yeah, so this was a vanity project for John, who was a non-actor but wanted to wanted to be, you know, Charles Bronson. Wanted to be one of the cool guys. He's kind of like those Tommy Wiseau types. You know, he has some yeah. money from some other profession and decides I, nothing better than to have a vanity project myself. That's right. And so he hires Wings Hauser and William Smith to make him look cool. And uh, they, they hang around him and they do macho stuff near him, near John, who's the writer, director, and actor in it. But and John, composer. And composer. Oh my gosh. You can't forget songs. that. There's about 10 songs in there and they're, they're almost all entirely featured. Half of them are performed live. But John, he never looks comfortable. It's the weirdest thing. He always looks so uncomfortable. Like Tommy in the room. Tommy looks comfortable. Tommy's like living his dream. Uh, but John in this movie... It looks like he'd rather be anywhere else during that karaoke sequence. And Even the lovemaking scenes here, you think he'd be having a good time. But oh, he looks like not. he was having a good time in one of them. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I saw the trailer for this back in the day when it was the Get Even cut. And so John has cut this movie three different times. So the original Champagne Bullets was shot in the 90s. And then I believe Road to Revenge was a cut of that version. But then Get Even... John shot some new footage for that one. And they're all available on the Vinegar Syndrome release of Champagne and Bullets under their sub-label VSA. 
And the new one, yeah, the new one is footage from like 2006, whereas it was shot in like the early 90s. Yeah. So it's like a fun dichotomy. Yeah, this. and I wanted to go home to watch it. I didn't have the gusto in me, but I, I had a great time watching this movie, man. I think it was one you need to watch with joints burning or beers drinking or with friends that like get hyped for these types of films. It's a samurai cop type film. Except Wings and William, when they appear on screen, to steal the show, obviously. You just want to watch these guys. So to have that mixed in with, like, instead of the mundanity of some of these, like, not great movies. But to be able to go from John being weird and not great to actually have Wings and William Smith just chilling. And, uh, the, and, and, and those two actors are actors that they're often reined in by a director, right? But it's nice to see them sort of... When you have John DeHart directing, you know, you, you sort of let them run free. They're wild horses in it, right? Yeah. So it's just and fun to let them go. And his female co-star gave, gave it or her all, too. Oh, yeah. Like, she gave a really good performance, too. Like, I believe Champagne and Bullets could have been a, you know, pretty good movie, if not for John, uh, wanting to act in it. But this is kind of like the Barry Gillis thing, too. And what always draws me to these kind of movies is I love seeing, like, a movie done by someone who doesn't, who's not, like, who's making a movie for the first time or they're not brought up in film school and, and learning all the conventions of this is what you have to do, this is what you don't have to do, right? So then you get to see sort of a movie from a completely different perspective. And yeah, this yeah. one's, you know, like all the action scenes, it's not like setting up with a whole bunch of buildup and stuff. It's literally just like, okay, they're in there, they have the guns, they're shooting. It's like, it's just getting right to the point, right? <laughs> and it's just fun, you know, a fun streamlined version of an action scene that, you know, when you've seen it built together and you've been taught all the coverage you're supposed to get, it's fun to see it in a completely different way like it is in Champagne and Bullets. So you had a good birthday? Oh, it was great. It was a lot of fun. We we were howling. We had a there's one continuity flub there that's pretty iconic. Where he's he's love making with the one lady, and they have they drink the titular champagne, and then he goes to put the champagne on the table, but he kind of missed the table and he couldn't find it. And so then a PA's hand reaches up, <laughs> who's not supposed to be there, and then grabs the glass from him delicately, and then he continues on in his lovemaking scene. But it's just one of those kind of moments there that just makes you makes you love movies. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was special. I do believe that was a result of the open mat scan, though. I, I, I'm wondering, I'm willing to bet that won't be in the get even cut. Probably not. Because, <laughs> yeah, the other cuts are four by three, like, you know, old school TV size. So uh, this one was a beautiful, too beautiful scan probably from Vinegar Syndrome, but it looked awesome. It was so much fun. A lot of laughs, a lot of just good, good fun kind of macho posturing in it. And uh, just they don't make movies like that anymore. No, it's a nice one for the dum-dums. And I'll definitely be watching the Get Even Cut at some point in the near future. I, I want John DeHart to get more. we got to get a Kickstarter going for a sequel or something like that. <laughs> Samurai Cop 2 can get it, so can Champagne and Bullets Road to Revenge. How about with a two? There you go. <laughs> I got some mail here, Rhett. Mail day. Mail day. What do you got? 
What do I got? What do you got? I'm kicking it off. Well, it was my birthday, so I was given a gift card to Sunrise, and so I decided to get Texas Chainsaw Massacre The Next Generation. Ooh, provocative. From Scream Factory. Yeah, I remember being a big piece, but I'm a big sequel guy, uh, especially the sequels that everyone hates, so I'm thinking I'm going to find some something, something alike in this one, especially... With the early performances of Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey, that should that should help. Directed by the writer of the first Hinkle. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I'm excited to give it give it another go, especially with a nice transfer. The one I watched was like some old VHS from Rogers Video way back in the day, so I'm sure it's much better than that one. <laughs> I'm excited to check it out. I've liked some of the the later Texas Chainsaw sequels, like Texas Chainsaw 3D, and so I don't know. I think I think I'll have a better time this time than I remember having been in the past. Good luck. Good luck, yeah, I'll need it. I too got some mail from Scream Factory, Red. Eight-Legged Freaks, starring David Arquette and a young Scarlett Johansson. This is a nice creature feature from the early 2000s, a much simpler time where the budgets of movies didn't cost as much as, you know, war budgets of large nations. Or you could spend a bunch of money, like there's, that has a decent budget, right? But like enough for like your Sharknados that, that don't cost like 10 grand, you know, it actually has, you know. That's right, a creature feature with a nice medium-sized budget yeah. and some cutting edge effects of the time that don't hold up super well, but the spider design is great. And they really go full gremlins tremors on the creatures and make it like a nice time at the movies. Is it full CGI or some puppets and stuff? There's some puppets for the close-ups, but uh, it's sadly mostly CGI. That's uh, probably, there's probably some charm to it. I get charm out of like, uh, you know, Mimic or The Relic. and There the is, mummy. but at a certain point when you see this, the final mall shootout and you try to picture the actors like doing these scenes with no spiders around, it was probably not a really fun time making those scenes. I bet the actors would have much preferred having some spider legs to interact with. Uh, I haven't yet checked out the making of, but it looks like it's an almost feature length doc on the making of it. And it's a new 2K scan in the movie and it, it looked pretty damn good, man. And... I gotta say, it holds up. It was just a nice time. I, Back in the day, they used to have like five or six movies that would come out a week, all mid-budget, and you'd have a horror to pick from. You'd have an Bats action Bats with from. Lou Diamond Phillips. You yes. get these random ones. I actually yeah. watched Bats not that long ago, too. It's on Amazon Prime. <laughs> Bats is better than Eight-Legged Freaks. Is it? Okay. But they're in the same, same style, same wheelhouse of just wanting to give you a good time and delivering said good time. So thanks for putting this out, Scream Factory. Not an essential movie by any means, what a darn good one. What else you got, right? That's good. Well, little class here, I guess, is my next two picks. But I picked, uh, I haven't seen this one, September 30th, 1955. Uh, but it's from a director I really revere, James Bridges, who's done uh, Perfect, which I always go to bat for. It's kind of like the American uh, Heavenly Bodies, if we're talking about Canadian exploitation films. But... Uh, this one was like a very serious kind of coming-of-age story around the time of when James Dean died. That's the date for it. And so I love, I've been watching a lot of Hangout movies lately, and uh, sort of, this is probably a, a more art house version of that. But I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that. Great Gordon Willis cinematography again. He's, he's the king, so I can't wait to check this one out. All right, up next, I got a UK import rep from Indicator who've put out some beautiful releases. They got a great release of Fat City in the last detail, jam-packed with special features. This one is Devil in a Blue Dress from director Carl Franklin, starring Denzel Washington, an adaptation of the Walter Mosley noir novel. This is a very lurid, pulpy noir that did not get enough attention. On the outside, it looks quite classy, and it's classily shot, but it really deals with the meat 
of the times. It takes place in the early 50s, following a black detective in a time where it was very difficult to be a black man, let alone someone prying into the private business of nefarious strangers. Um, Walter Mosley has written some excellent books following Easy Rollins, who's the lead in this film. I love the books, and I gotta say, Devil in Blue Dress, the film, is a perfect adaptation of that first Walter Mosley, Easy Rollins book. Uh, so if you haven't seen Dental Blue Dress, check it out. Classy noir, but some salacious, salacious content. So it's a good hard R? It is. It's a good hard R. I, I believe it was 14A when I saw it back in cinemas. I saw it at the Southland uh, yeah, cinemas. Okay, so you're able to see it without parental guidance. Yeah, but you know, a 14A in the 90s would be a hard R now because they actually showed skin back then. Uh, rest in peace, skin. What you got next? Right? I don't know if there's any skin in this one, but uh, another kind of lurid, pulpy one from, from an earlier time even, and this is The Bloody Brood. And it's one of the very first Canadian feature films to be released, 1959. So two years before, the same director, Julian Rothman, would make the probably more celebrated film of his, The Mask, which is one of the first 3D films and a, a damn good time. So I'm excited, looking forward to this one. It's kind of a pulpy uh, sort of detective story as well about a guy's brother dies by eating hamburger laced with broken glass. <laughs> and then he has to go on the, on the hunt to find all this beatnik generation, drug-infused culture. And it's got uh, a commentary from our guest today, Paul Corp. So I am excited to... Uh, to watch it and then hear his commentary. It's been a blind spot for me for a long time and Kino's been doing great work, so another Kino classic that I'm excited to check out. The Bloody Brood. Awesome. I like that we're doing all these like noirs. We usually do the trashiest of the trash here. <laughs> yeah. So I, I too, I, it's good, a classy month for us. I got Deep Cover from Criterion Collection, uh, directed by Bill Duke. The King. Yeah, super neon-infused 90s noir. Uh, starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jeff Goldblum, uh, Clarence Williams III gives a terrific performance in it. This is the nitty gritty shit, the real deal shit. You can feel this movie when you're watching it. And Bill Duke, very underrated director, and I'm glad to see that Criterion's wised up and got one of his films out there. When the leaves of summer turn red and gold And the football games bring a hint of the cold time to get away Thanks to Paul and Brett for joining us for the sixth installment of the CuffCast. And thanks to you listeners at home for sticking around and, uh, you know, spending some of your time with us. You know, uh, the summer's coming to an end. Free time is precious. And uh, Rhett's been wasting it mowing the lawn. It's looking good, though. Good year. Good yeah. year. <laughs> it's a good year for your lawn, man. Yeah, I hope you listeners had a decent summer, all things considered. It's fall time, baby. It's film fest season approaching. Fantasia's going on right now. we got uh, SIF coming up, Fantastic Fest, TIFF. There's a lot of cool stuff coming up. So a lot of cool movies for you to check out, and a lot of movies we'll be checking out to hopefully play at Cuff 2022. See you later. And we're gonna have a good time. Gonna have a good time. Yeah, we're gonna have a good time. We're going on now. A ball break. Walking hand in hand in the moonlight, and the moonlight. We'll be the sweet soul there, I swear. <laughs>